This episode of Life in Concert Podcast is brought to you by Phantom Sweat. On the Life in Concert Podcast, we sit down and talk to real people about real stories and real concerts that they've attended. So I am excited to sit down and chat with Michael Goodhart as he shares his special concert experience with us. Um, I must admit, this has been a fun little trip down memory lane. So here we go. Let's get it started. Life in Concert Podcast, Love Sexy Tour, 1988. Okay, so today I have uh, Michael Goodhart joining us on the Life in Concert Podcast. Um, Mike and I, we go back, what would you say, has it been 30 years? Please don't tell me it's been 30 years. I'd like to use 20 years, but... I mean, you can say time. you can say 29 and we'll still sneak it in under the wire, but it's probably been about 30. So, oh, God. yeah, let's say, let's say, yeah, because uh, it would have been... We would have met when we were probably closer to 28, 29 years. Yeah, that sounds about right. So might as well say 30. Um, (laughs) Interesting story, though, just real quick. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the night that we actually met, um, I went to a small college in Orange City, Iowa. Um, Mike Goodhart actually lived in the city um, where my college was. He went to a different college in the neighboring city. we had these school dances at our college. The only other guy out on the dance floor was Michael Goodhart. He's out there doing his thing. And if I recall, I think we met at the water fountain. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was either at the water fountain or at the, um, there was a TV viewing area with the big couches. I just remember being out in that area somewhere and you came up and said, I know you're not from around here. That's right. That's the implication being that I look like I come from a, a large city or something because of the style of music and the style of dancing that I was uh, doing or into. Uh, but yeah, I, I was from there, <laughs> as it turns out. Yep. And, you know, just for the record, you know, Mike is a uh, Caucasian, straight Caucasian male. And, <laughs> <laughs> and just the music that, you know, that they happen to be playing at the uh, dance and you know, just the, the rhythm <laughs> that he had. I was like, okay, this dude must be from New York or something like that. But turns out he was from Orange City, Iowa. And, you know, that was the beginning of our friendship. And, I mean, you and I have had hours and hours and hours of, of fun, whether it be, you know, listening to music, uh, making music, going to live shows. Um, Mike, you know, also DJed for several years. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you're you're producing music right now. You're kind of you're doing your thing as far as still still making music, right? Yeah, I am. It's 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 a, a little bit of a hobby with some aspirations to it, but I am in the process of putting the finishing touches uh, on a home studio. So later this year, hopefully, we'll have that all together. Uh, converting a second bedroom right now into a into the home studio. It's sort of a halfway point right now where everything's just sort of set up uh, piecemeal in our office, but converting the other room because this room is too crowded. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And, and Mike's been married for, gosh, has it been 10 years now? Uh, in December, it will be 10 years. Yes. It'll be 10 years. And I bring that up to say that, you know, we all, us, us married people know that our time is precious. Um, <laughs> and at the same time, we have more time. So, you know, we're not going out to clubs, you know, we're not going out to bars, we're not going 
going to festivals anymore. So, you know, we do have some downtime. So, Mike, it's nice to see that you're still involved with music and you're making uh, some good use of your time. And I always appreciate hearing the stuff that you make. And I'm looking forward to seeing that or listening to that that full album, man. So got to get cracking. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, <clears throat> again, you know, this podcast is really a podcast that's going to give us some insight to, uh, you know, kind of what makes a good concert, you know, expectations that we have as concert goers. But more than anything, it's just an opportunity for us to get into the heads of, you know, people out there to share their concert experience, something that, you know, it's kind of forever burned in their brain. So um, I know that I think that the first concert that you and I ever attended was, was it Public Enemy, Iowa State? Yeah, the first concert we went to together was Public Enemy with Special Ed and a group called Hardcore which I have never heard of since or before, but I remember their dancers. Uh, they had this sort of, there was, I think everybody at the time, all the hip hop acts at the time, which is kind of a lost art among hip hop uh, acts nowadays, is everybody had the DJ, everybody had some dancers. Uh, Special Ed's dancers were, I, I can't even remember their names now, but they had... I think they had the kid and play fades, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. the tall stovepipe looking hairdos with the uh, uh, Prancer the Dancer was one of them. I remember him. Prancer you remember? the Dancer, you yeah, know? I he do. Did the, he, you know, he did the thing where he sort of duck his shoulders down and he like rock from side to side as he sort of did the little like, I don't know what, like a James Brown kind of thing he would call it with his feet and sort of works. I, I just remember we, we used to... Uh, call back his name quite frequently yeah, yeah. but uh that was around the time right after right before that when uh, uh troy from heavy d and the boys had passed away from an accident where he fell from a, lar a balcony i believe because i can remember the little we had a running not really a joke but just sort of a, a reference to that as well uh something with heavy d's uh the girls they love me lyric i don't know if you remember that oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. but yeah so there was that was kind of uh kind of a spur of the moment thing is was really kind of where we cemented our friendship because i we had met previously in our friend randy's dorm yep uh, there were some illicit activities that were we won't mention now but they're not illegal uh they were just against the rules um, but I, I decided, oh, this guy seems pretty cool. And I couldn't think of anybody else that would want to go with me. I think probably now in retrospect, Fozzie might have probably wanted to go, but, uh, I don't remember if he was still at school, if he had graduated already then at that point, a uh, friend of ours from back in the day, but asked you if you'd like to go with me. And I think we took, was it, uh, was it Mark or Jim Allen? I think Jim Allen went with us. Oh yeah, it was either Jim Allen or Mark Wolfert. Yeah, I thought I thought it was Jim Allen, but anyway, uh, yeah. So it was like three of us went down to Iowa State University, um, which coincidentally is going to come up again pretty soon. Um, but yeah, that was an interesting concert. I, I'm not really a big fan of live hip hop, to be honest with you. Especially at that time, I think it was a lot of they would play the track and just sort of. 
I don't know if they had EQ the vocals out a little bit, but you could still hear that there were vocals on the backing track. It just sounded it was it's kind of like talking over a record, basically yeah. their own record, not yeah. the way it originally would be, where you you play "Good Times" by Chic and then it becomes "Rapper's Delight" as you talk over it on the party. But yeah, it was it was just sort of like, hey, here's our record. We're just going to talk over it, and then a couple guys are going to dance, and there's your show. But uh, not not terribly disappointing. No. Uh, it, was, it was fun. It's a good time. Yeah. I like to watch. I like to watch the dancing. Yeah, and I think for me, I think that might have been one of the first times that I'd been to Iowa State. So you know, coming from uh-huh. Gary, Indiana, <laughs> going to college in Iowa in the middle of nowhere, um, and experiencing you know the culture, <laughs> believe it or not, that yeah. Iowa State provided. Uh, there was a lot of brothers and sisters up at Iowa State. <laughs> that is <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah. As a matter of fact, I think we went to a couple of. Uh, parties at the uh what was it called the The black cultural center the bcc the bcc goodness gracious so so yeah so refresh my memory though because i've been to a couple of different shows at iowa state and at a couple different venues so what venue was that that we saw public enemy at at iowa state that was that was at psych um it wasn't cyclone stadium cyclone stadium i believe is the uh that's the football stadium Cyclone Stadium. I think it was a Hilton Coliseum is the name of the basketball center. Hilton Coliseum is the basketball stadium. So, yeah, the the name of the stadium was Hilton Coliseum. That was the basketball arena. Uh, it's about, I think it's about a 14,000 foot or 14,000 seat arena, rather. Um, yeah, it's the big, it's the big venue. Saw a couple shows there. I saw one show at the football stadium that was u2 for their zoo tv tour uh with paul oakenfold and the disposable heroes of hip-hopercy i think it was in 1992 if i'm not mistaken right on, um, right on. but that was uh, that was another good show which we'll we won't be talking about today but <laughs> another fantastic show yeah i think uh i'm trying to think i think maybe <laughs> so i I recall seeing Jesus Christ Superstar there, <laughs> and I I recall seeing REM. I think it was the Orange Crush tour at Iowa State. But I, I think I have to admit, I've probably seen more better shows at University of Iowa than I did at Iowa State. But I digress. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, so I've kind of given... Giving, we've talked a little bit about, you know, your affinity for music... And of course, the idea of this podcast is to tell us a little bit about um, your favorite concert that you've ever attended. So before we jump into that experience, can you share with us uh, maybe one or two concerts that almost made that list? Uh, well, there's there were a couple. I, I toyed briefly with the idea of the the Public Enemy show just because of the the friends that went with me, uh, but I ultimately did not make the list, obviously. Um, the Zoo TV tour from U2 was another one that almost made my almost made my list as the most memorable concert. Um, that was because of the spectacle of the show itself. I think if you go online and look at some of what they did that year, it was a pretty breakthrough kind of stage show. Uh, they had the promontory sort of stage that went out in the middle of the crowd. It was, a, it was a big arena tour that year. And they had a couple of these European cars called Trabants, which are on the end of these sort of 
moving hydraulic arms and they were used as the the headlights were used as sort of spotlights on the crowd and they would move back and forth and just sort of involve the crowd and the lights would flash all around the arena and they had a series of large screens uh, which they had a kind of an art display going over it um, there was a, a car up on on a platform in the middle of the the middle of the arena that Paul Oakenfold was DJing between acts and he was unknown at that point he wasn't the big mega star that he is now but uh, that was that was a pretty amazing concert as well um, all around I would say uh, some other good ones there were just I felt like they didn't really count because it was Lollapalooza, which is just kind of a mishmash of a bunch of different memories. It's all sort of the same day. You, I, I didn't want to count that as a, as a one concert because it's sort of an event. Uh, there was, I would say, some of the most memorable acts I saw at Lollapalooza. This is back in the 90s when it was still a traveling show and not you know, a takeover of, of uh, Chicago and downtown uh, Grant Park, which it is now. Um, Luscious Jackson was one of I think that was the first time I had ever heard of them uh, they were playing on the side stage and I remember us going over to see them and I was instantly smitten with just their look and their sound they were kind of like uh, sort of a weird amalgamation of funk and Beastie Boys hip hop and this sort of stoner groove kind of thing they had going and a very punk attitude but I, they just uh, I, I wanted to hear more of them and I ended up buying uh, several of their albums and I I fell in love with them right there uh, Cypress Hill I think it was the same year I remember as soon as they, the opening strains of uh, Hand on the Pump started the, watching the entire crowd pogo up and down in unison uh, people trying to pass uh, illicit substances around in the crowd uh, I remember the several years later there was uh, the Beastie Boys um, were one of the headliners. They were the second headliner underneath the Smashing Pumpkins, who I also saw in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, as the sole act. Actually, no, they were Fountains of Wayne open for them in Sioux Falls, but that was that almost made my list because I can still piece together the track list in my head to this day of how that concert went. I I went home and made an entire mixtape of the concert set list the next day because it was burned into my head uh, that was that was a pretty close second uh, just because that was the height of their powers around melancholy and the infinite sadness time i think it was 1997 um but yeah so those were the, some of the honorable mentions um there's a long list of people i've seen but those were the most the ones that sort of jump out to me the most obviously uh you and I will both remember the ministry show from 92, but that had little to do with the music and more to do with the chaos that ensued when a food fight broke out, which turned into a sod fight, which turned into Al Jurgensen chastising the crowd. Um, <laughs> there's, I think there's video online somewhere. It's, it's insane. Yeah. Um, and I but think, yeah, I, so I think we might've had something to do with starting that <laughs> food fight. Yeah. Too. I think it was the, the guy with the watermelon or the, we, we, we had the watermelon. We just couldn't get it open. And there was a guy there inexplicably with a rather large, like a machete almost. Yeah. It's like, will this work? And everyone sort of freaked out that this guy had a knife that big. And then we realized, Oh, well, let's just cut this watermelon up. So let me ask you this. What, was the first concert you ever attended? 
Ooh, first concert I ever attended would have been a Christian group, probably in high school or freshman year in college. Let's see. Hmm. I can't even remember their name. It would have been somebody that I just thought, well, this should be interesting. I, you know, I, I think they played at Northwestern, so I don't remember who they were. But the first concert that I remember paying to see and going, having to go like out of my way to go see was Lisa Lisa and Cult Jam with Full Force at the Iowa State Fair <laughs> in 1987. Um and that, that was a fun show. It was a good time. I think Mark, my friend Mark Van Rielen and I went to that show. Uh, drove down there the same day of the show in the morning. Um, drove back at night. And got home in the wee hours of 3 or 4 in the morning. But we had a great day. Uh, that was one of my favorite groups at the time. Um, and yeah, that's the first one I really remember. I think that same summer... I saw the Beach Boys in concert in Sioux City, Iowa, where they trucked in a bunch of sand into the arena to make it a giant beach. Um, and just, I just remember the atmosphere of this sort of crazy, like kind of beach party indoors. Uh, it was super hot. It was during a huge heat wave that year. So I was thankful to be in the air conditioning, but um, that was a pretty unique concert as well. I just, you know, the Beach Boys seemed like it was more of a nostalgia thing because it was a 60s act and this was in the 80s when we saw the concert. So it was, you know, it'd be like going to see, I don't know, Green Day or something now, I imagine, for kids. But um, yeah, it was pretty, That, that was. those are some of my early formative experiences. However, I will say that my first experience with live music was as a child watching my sister and I would listen to uh, the radio shows on Friday night on AM radio. And also at a certain point, I think it was probably 1030 or 1130. I can't remember our time central. There was a show called Don Kirshner's Rock Concert, which uh, showcased a bunch of, I think, pre-recorded sets. And there were some live uh, stuff, too where you know the current bands would perform their songs there was uh i can remember watching fascinated with meatloaf doing paradise by the dashboard light about a seven or eight minute version and my sister and i were just like what is happening and watching other other groups we you would you would see funk artists some sort of these bar rock bands that kind of you know the more of the aor rock kind of stuff that was happening at the time the late 70s were a pretty bizarre mixture of a lot of different types of music. Uh, there was disco at the time. Like I said, funk was big. Um, meatloaf was was coming up. There was a lot of this sort of soft rock was hitting at the time. It really was a fun time for music. And that is where my favorite artist of all time came out of. And I think he was probably a product of that kind of that mixture of everything. And who was who was your favorite artist? Uh, my favorite artist of all time is Prince. Ah, okay. Right on, right on. Well, it's, and, yeah, go ahead. No, it, it's funny that you mentioned that, you know, your first experience with, with live music took place, um, you know, just from a television show. Because for me, as I think about it, Saturday, Saturday Night Live for me was <laughs> was a venue for me where I saw a lot of live music. <laughs> as as a as a young person 
And, yeah. you know, I mean, Saturday nights when you're, you know, nine or ten years old, you, you, you're not going anywhere, right? Street lights come on, you got to come inside. That was really the only night. Friday night, Saturday night was the only night that I think I could stay up till, you know, 1130 or midnight. And, I mean, I could, if I think hard enough, I can almost tell you, like, all the the acts that I saw on Saturday Night Live and <clears throat> where I was at, um, who was over at the house, what happened that day. Because for me, I, when, when the music acts came on, I pretty much shut down. You know, I pretty much zoned out. And no matter where I was, I would search for a TV. Um, and I could recall being, you know, spending a night at friends' houses and, you know, being at, you know, at their cousin's house and then if it was a Saturday night man I was I was begging them to turn on the TV but I think you know for us and for a lot of people um, that's the cool thing about live music whether it truly is live and you're there seeing them perform or whether or not you're watching it on TV is that anything can happen during a live show and things happen <laughs> right and it's those yeah. things that are those those are the things that really stick in your mind and that's what makes live shows um so special um to me anyways so it's it's exactly. interesting that yeah. you said that yeah no great all right well cool um thanks for kind of giving giving us some insight to uh you know where you've been what shows you've been to and 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 some of the reasons why you know live music is important to you so uh let's jump right into it What's your most memorable favorite concert? Oh, my my most memorable concert is uh, Prince at the Hilton Coliseum in Ames, Iowa, in the fall of 1988. The Love Sexy Tour. Just an amazing two hours of musical experimentation, musical theater, showmanship. And just a tour de force of one guy uh, making a crowd just do whatever he wanted to do, making his instruments do whatever he wanted them to do, taking you on a journey that he, I don't think he duplicated again. His his future shows would, would all be famously different. Um, you could go see him three nights in a row at the same auditorium and each show would be completely unique. Um, he was famous for doing this all of his, through all of his career, but I think the Love Sexy Tour was probably the most structured uh, from, from what I've read of other venues. Uh, the set list was largely the same the rest of that tour. Um, I've even listened to you can find online an entire show in Germany that he performed that same year, about two hours long. And it's pretty much the same set that he did. Um, you know, some of the songs maybe reorganized a little bit, but the opening and the closing of the show are exactly the same. And it, as soon as I heard it, it was, it's like when you walk by something and you smell something you haven't smelled since you were 12 years old. Yeah. And just right like that, you're there again. Yeah, as soon as I heard it, I just went, wow, it's like 30 years melted away and, and he's still alive. I'm still young. The world is still, everything is possible kind of a feeling. Um, so, 
Yeah. So in so this was in 1988, and this was at you said it was in uh, Ames, Iowa. Yeah, in the so, Hilton Coliseum. So were you still living in Iowa at the time, or? Yeah, I was uh, going to college in uh, Northwest Iowa, Door College in Sioux Center. Uh, at that time. Uh, I had a friend named Darren who was a freshman at Iowa State. Um, he had been a grade behind me in high school. We went to high school together. And he uh, made a point to, uh, as soon as I, he called me, the second he saw in the paper that it was, Prince was going to be appearing at Hilton Coliseum because he knew how insanely devoted to Prince I was. And he said, I'm going to, you want me to get tickets? You got to come down. Yes, absolutely. I'll come down. No problem. He got the tickets. So he and I were going to go together. Uh, when I actually drove down there, um, I found out at the time, this was when Prince released Love Sexy. It was sort of, he, he was originally going to release uh, an album, which was called the Black Album. And at the time, Prince was going through this kind of weird thing spiritually where he produced this album, which was a little more risque and more on the physical side versus the spiritual side, which Love Sexy would become. So when he made the Black album, he presented it to Warner Brothers. They said, this is a little bit weird. And he went, yeah, I'm not really feeling it either. And I'm going to come back with something else. He came back with Love Sexy, which they released. And then the Black album became a bootleg uh, item which no one could get because he didn't officially release it. Although there were recordings out there and he did end up putting it out in other countries on uh, vinyl. And when I got there to Iowa State, uh, my friend Darren told me his Japanese friend from down the hall had a copy of the Black Album on vinyl and would I like to record a dub of it. So we went down the hall to his friend's room uh, threw the record on, put in a tape, started recording, and as soon as it was done, I grabbed the tape, wrote down the track list, and proceeded to wear that tape out for the next two years in my car. It was a masterpiece. I think eventually they did release the Black Album officially, Warner Brothers did. This was after uh, the name change thing happened in the 90s, I think it was. They they released a remastered version of it. I'm not sure that you can still find it officially Unless you go to a used record store, they may have the copies, uh, but it was re officially released. So the, the audio quality was much better, but, um, he would do actually some songs from the black album in concert in this, uh, in the love sexy tour. But, um, you know, not a lot of people knew the songs at the time and I had just heard them that week. So I, you know, they weren't burned into my head yet, but that was, that was a thing. And I was a proud owner of, that tape for some time because as i said nobody else had that album and yeah i, I felt like uh like i'd you know unlock some level in a video game or something where it's just like <laughs> I, you couldn't brag about it even because nobody cared like there weren't a lot of huge prince fans in northwest iowa so i couldn't really it was an achievement that i treasured to myself but again you know it's just that's that's all i had at the time yeah well, it's interesting because you touched upon a couple things. Um, you mentioned that the, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but you said that the Black Album, I'm not sure if you said it, but the Black Album was the album that, where he was kind of getting a little bit, kind of showing his spiritual side a bit. But 
The Black Album was the physical one. That was the, it was, it was the dirty, the Camille album, whereas Camille was his, uh, his sort of naughty persona where he would pitch up the microphone uh, to sound like uh, a little feminine, I guess. And yeah. then he called himself Camille. There was some material that he recorded as Camille and he would release as B-sides later, but that a lot of that album he did some of the pitched up vocals and there's ones where he pitched down his vocals. Uh, it was a song called Bob George, which was on there. That was really, I don't even know how to describe it. It's just, it sort of sounds like almost David Lynchian, just kind of weirdness. Um, <laughs> you have to, you have to hear it to experience it, but um, where he's, he's talking to a girl on the phone, uh, some girl that, he he's not having it with her excuses and he's just talking in this really low pitch down vocal. Um, and he sort of references himself, uh, talking about, uh, who, who do I look like baby yesterday's fool? He says, who are you listening to Prince? That skinny motherfucker with the high voice. sort of mocking himself uh and it's it is uh yeah it's a it's kind of a weird album it's not as cohesive as love sexy but there's some real jams on there it's one of my favorite Prince songs of all time is on that that album it's called rock hard in a funky place um sort of a mid-tempo funk jam uh which he was kind of really doing well at the time with some of his uh this was just shortly after Sign of the Times came out in 1987. So he had the full band with Eric Leeds on saxophone and um, some great some great musicians. Um, and they were really doing some some fun funk jams. He had another side project around that time, too, called Madhouse with Eric Leeds that they were doing sort of improv jazz, but with funk stylings. And they put out an album called, I think it was called Eight. And they just named the tracks one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight. Uh, so he was doing a lot of weird stuff at the time. He had, you know, his side projects where he was writing pop songs for everybody under the sun um, because he had to put his pop stuff somewhere because his experimental f- stuff was going on his albums. Interesting. Well, I, you know, so a couple things. One is the Love Sexy album. Is that the album cover where he's like sitting on the cover and he's basically nude, right? That's that's yeah, he's naked. He's sitting on a, an open flower. The, the symbolism is is about as subtle as a sledgehammer in your face. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a large, very sexualized flower behind him. He's naked with one hand over his chest, like over his heart. Uh, his leg is strategically covering his crotch, and he's sort of staring into the distance. Like I I found the cover kind of laughable, even as a Prince fan. I kind of went, oh my, this is really like I I much preferred the black album cover, which was just a black square. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like this is more. This is like this is cool. This is understated. Uh, but the thing I hated the most about the album, which was I love I I love the music, but I hated what he did, which was on the CD. It was one track, so. If you remember at the time, Alphabet Street was the hit record off that album. That was what he released in that summer. And then when the album came out, 
everyone was excited. Oh, this is great. This is the return of Prince finally, because it had a very pop kind of flavor to it that he had sort of gone away from a little bit. It felt like more like vintage Prince, like back to around the world in a day kind of Prince, veering close to Purple Rain. But the album was one track on the CD. So if you wanted to hear your song, eight songs into it, eh, sorry, you had to fast forward manually through this thing. It was almost like having an eight track tape again. That's funny. Yeah. Well, like I mentioned earlier, I didn't go <clears throat> to this particular, um, I, I didn't attend this tour at all. Um, and I can't, I think I was actually in Iowa at the time as well, attending college. But um, I, I know that he was in Illinois for, for a few shows. And you alluded to it earlier, uh, just in general, uh, concerts back in the 80s um, and, and even in the 90s. I mean, a lot of the performers would play a city and they would play um, three or four shows in that city. Now you're lucky to get two shows out of, out of an act, but it's funny. So again, I didn't go to this show, so I did a little research. And so, and I want to read this real quick just to kind of get your take on it. So it says, obviously that a lot of people think this was Prince's most theatrical tour. Uh, the show itself was divided into two halves the first half had a loose storyline with Prince playing the part of Camille, chasing after two women. Who were those two women? Uh, probably Cat, his dancer at the time. I think. Uh, I think uh, it yes, would have been Cat. Cat right. would have been one of them. Can't remember her last name. Cat Power or something like this. Um, I don't know. I know at the time uh, Bonnie Boyer was playing keyboards for him, but I don't know if she was the other one. Um, Well, I think. Okay, go ahead. Well, the other person was Sheila E. Oh, okay. Well, she was playing drums, so I didn't. Yeah, I didn't remember that. I just remember her theatrical drum kit setup, which I can describe in detail later. But okay, well, let me uh, let me just go on. Um, He performed a lot of his more sexually explicit material and put a lot of the songs into medleys. Everyone wore black and white costumes for the first half. The second half featured a reborn prince and featured his more spiritually oriented material. The band wore brightly colored outfits for the second half. The second half also usually featured solo spot with Prince playing a medley of songs on the piano. So I do have a list of the set list, which, man, it just reminds me of just how much a performer this this guy was. I mean, I've gone to several concerts, and you're lucky to get 10 songs. 10 songs is a lot of songs out of a typical concert. So Act 1, Erotic City, Housequake, Slow Love, Adore, Delirious, um, I Want to Be Your Lover, Head, Love Bazaar, Blues and Sea, if, if I Had a Harem, when You Were Mine, Little Red Corvette, Controversy, Dirty Mine, um, Bob George, and Anastasia. That's that's Act 1. I think that's 14 songs right there. Act 2, um, I Know, Love Sexy, Glam Slam, The Cross, I Wish You Heaven, Kiss, Dance On, Piano Medley, he did uh, When Two Are In Love, Venus and Mayo in Condition, um, Of The Heart, Raspberry Beret, Strange Relationship, Let's Go Crazy, When Doves Cry, Purple Rain, 1999, and the encore was Alphabet Street. That's 28 songs. Does that sound about right? Uh, yeah, if you look at various different set lists at this concert, you can see that he probably about 
three quarters of the set list remained the same and he would just play with a few different songs, but they were all thematically uh, similar in here that he would do the physical half first and then he would do the spiritual half second, which again is like the albums that he was doing at the time where, you know, basically the first act was, was the black album. Second act was love sexy, but he mixed in whichever songs he felt were suitable to those particular acts and uh that's kind of how it was structured and i remember now that you mentioned the, the costumes yeah i do remember the costume changes as well and it was in the round too this was the stage was in the center of the arena and there was a platform going all the way around it and he would use it to great effect and so everybody got a good look at him and his uh and everybody in fact chile's platform drum platform spun around so she could as well face whatever side of the crowd she wanted to at any time that's interesting. One thing, and again, before we get into the specifics and kind of your experience, um, I did come across an interesting fact, which is this is one of the only tours that he did where he he, he barely broke even. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that it was so theatrical. So 67 T-Bird come to mind? I mean, did he drive on stage with a car? Yeah, it was it was that was the final encore was Alphabet Street. He came out, there was a track that ran around the outside of the stage. Kind of looked like they had the the car mounted to this track much like a roller coaster would be if you if you ever seen the kind of roller coasters where it's one kind of solid metal rail in the middle instead of the two sort of train track style, the old wooden ones. And it'll have this sort of thing, you know, there's like a harness underneath the, the roller coaster car that rides that's sort of clamped to this center rail instead of the outside ones, the way those, you know, you know what I'm talking about, the two different, two different kinds of roller coasters. Yeah. That's how I would call it. It was like uh, they had something rigged underneath the car, so it was like clamped to this rail and it just drove around the stage. And he sat in the backseat of the car with his guitar and there was, uh, I think Cat was driving the car and there was like a couple other people in the car. He had this Thunderbird and he just rode around the stage as he played Alphabet Street for the final song. It was insanely cool. Oh my gosh. And, you know, and I, I mean, we could go on forever about all the different things that took place. I mean, as far as the theatrical uh, <clears throat> outlining of the actual tour itself. But the other thing that struck me as interesting is the fact I mean, I looked at the dates for the Love Sexy tour, and I mean, he literally played like every night for like 200 nights right so that's the other thing as to the fact that why this they didn't make a lot of money off this tour if you have all of that stuff chain link chain link fences um flowers and money falling from the stage and like the way that it was set up and have to, and to have to move all of that and transport all of that from from paris to belgium and then the next night, you know, to London, you know, the good thing is, is that, again, he did three or four shows in each in each city, but he was literally doing a show every night. And I don't know how many shows he did. I think he did something like 50 shows. Um, in oh, yeah, I'm, look, I'm looking at the list right now. Uh, my concert was actually on the 21st of November, 1988. Uh, he was just two nights prior like uh he was in vancouver on the 17th then on the 23rd he ended up in memphis 
The 25th, he was in New Orleans. Then he went to two nights later in Houston. So it looks like about two days between shows. On the 29th, he ended up in Dallas and so on and so forth. Uh, then he went to Asia uh, after the beginning of the new year. I think in February, he ended up doing the Asian leg. But prior to the, the Ames shows, we were in the last leg of his uh, North American tour. It was the last five or six shows of that tour was, uh, was where that fell in. So, yeah, I mean, he had his he, he had worked out all the kinks by the time I saw him. It looks like he had a, that was a well-oiled machine at that point. Nice. So the cool thing, I, I really appreciate the fact that you gave us that little insight and that little glimpse into the dorm room life you know, the, the kind of what took place before you actually attended the concert. You know, uh, the fact that Darren, you know, had a buddy that lived down the hall that was from Japan, from all places, that had this album. Um, you know, you taking the time to, you know, inquire about it and, and all that good stuff. It's like, I love hearing those little types of stories surrounding a concert because I think for me, all of that, plays into the experience, right? Just to hear the excitement in your voice telling just that little segment of the story. We haven't even talked about uh, your actual experience at this particular show, at this particular arena. But, you know, those that story in itself, you know, it just gives us an idea of just how exciting, you know, the whole day or that weekend could have been. So take us, take us to the show. So did Darren wind up going with you or did you go by yourself or... Uh, no, it was, yeah. So when we went to the show, uh, my friend Darren and I went together. Um, as we only had two tickets, so it would have been, you know, obviously it would have been an ideal thing to take a girl to. But why you don't you don't take sand to the beach? Um, we were going to a Prince show. <laughs> you know, that's that's where that's what you're thinking. You're thinking this this guy is going to do all our work for us, which he kind of did, but. Um, yeah, it was weird. We walked into the arena and before it even started, I know he was doing something. It's not, there's nothing that I can specifically point to, but I guarantee you this guy was putting something in the air. He had some scent that they were spraying into the air because it smelled like funky, like almost like a bed when you wake up in the morning, kind of that funky, like weird sex smell. And I just remember turning to him saying, it smells like sex in here right now. And it was about 20 minutes before the show would even start. And people were starting to get that. I think he, he wanted everybody to be a little bit, a little bit lubed up before they got the show started. They want everybody to be kind of in the mood before he got them even more in the mood. And it was a lot of Prince would do this. He's very theatrical. He's very, he knows what he's doing. He play with you a little bit. He'll push you a little bit, pull you a little bit, push you a little bit, pull back, work you up until he gets to that climax of the show where he just really just lays it all out there and just gives you everything you wanted. But, uh, yeah, the beginning walking in, it was the anticipation was more than anything else that I had. I discovered Prince probably six years prior. My sister had the 1999 album um, and I fell in love with that record. I bought my own copy because she she started not letting me borrow it anymore. And uh, so I bought my own copy, listened to that one religiously until uh, Purple Rain came out and then the world uh, caught on. And the world quickly forgot about him, it almost seems like. They didn't, not totally, 
but he kind of wasn't as big of a deal for a few years. Um, around the world in the day, kind of dropped off. It wasn't at the level that Purple Rain was. Um, people thought it was a little weird. Then uh, after that, he had Parade, which was the soundtrack to Under the Cherry Moon, which was even weirder, a little bit harder to access. But uh, I think you and I will both agree that's a fun movie. It's campy. It is what it is. Um, that was a huge cult hit for a lot of people. Still is to this day a treasured kind of movie. Represents a lot of what they love about Prince. Um, and then he released his masterpiece, of, uh, uh, which was Sign of the Times, a double album, which had originally been a triple album. And he had to pare that down to a double. Um, and it still was packed. Like every song on there was amazing. And that only yielded a couple of big hits. I think uh, the, the title track and then You Got the Look, I think, were the biggest hits off that one. And then when he dropped, by the time he dropped Love Sexy, he was just kind of, you know, kind of there. But he was, he still had, you know, Alphabet Street was, a, was kind of a big hit that summer. People were, you know, I don't think thought that he was a very, that he had fallen off by any degree. Not to the extent that, say, somebody like Madonna might have for a while, but he wasn't at he wasn't an A pop star as much as he used to be. But he was still my favorite artist, and I had always wanted to see him. He was never even close to coming around. Um, I had gone to First Avenue in Minneapolis just to try and absorb some of the Prince vibe. He wasn't there. This was on a New Year's Eve, I think, in 1987. And I just wanted to get kind of the, I, I wanted to absorb anything I could that was Prince. So when he was ready to come out, I was just on fire waiting for this to happen. And it did not disappoint me in the slightest. It was actually better than I thought it would be. Nice, nice. So the concert itself, um, as far as the, the attendance was, I mean, you, you just kind of outlined the fact that you know, Prince had kind of been kind of ebbing and flowing as far as his popularity. Was was it was it a packed house? It seemed to be pretty pretty packed at that night. Uh, it's like I said, it's a fourteen thousand seat arena. Um, I would guess the attendance to be anywhere between twelve and thirteen thousand. I don't think it was wall to wall people, but everywhere you looked, you could see people. You see lighters everywhere. Um. I saw him most recently at the United Center in 2012, and it wasn't nearly that full. I would say that was at about 60% capacity in the United Center. And this was, yeah, there's still a good, and and again, this was a college crowd. So college crowd is very music focused. That's one of the big things college students love to talk about. Movies and music, for the most part, it's, that's kind of all there is to do besides well, there's other things to do, but you can do those things while watching movies and listening <laughs> to music as well. Um, and a lot of people probably were doing it that night because it was all manner of funky in there. And it was, uh, yeah, I think everybody enjoyed. Everybody came expecting what they got. Let's put it that way. So was there one particular uh, song or one particular moment that... that uh you you realize you know hey this is what i came for I, i'm getting my money's worth i can die now and and, and be happy 
Um, yeah, there was a few moments. I just the one thing that I remember first was the opening of this of the concert. It's dead quiet. You kind of hear the like. I was expecting the everyone in there was expecting the opening organ riff from Let's Go Crazy. Let's face it, that's that's just how you expected a Prince show to start. It's not how Prince started the show. It's sort of you just heard this drum beat, and it just went like that for two minutes, just thump, 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 thump. It's like a heartbeat. And it just kept just kept going and nothing was happening you just see like the lights just kind of shimmering and uh he launched into erotic city i just remember the crowd going nuts because this was a cult hit of his as a b-side from let's go crazy um and that's how we started the show was with the erotic city you see sheila e out there sheila e guest vocal on erotic city the record so it was great that she was there playing the drums um I remember just all the sort of ups and downs of that first part of the set, which was all the good stuff. Like uh, the real kind of, I think a lot of the crowd, the college crowd wanted to hear that part of the set the most, which was all the quote unquote dirty stuff. Um, He was doing, you know, like delirious, jack you off, stuff like that. Um, I remember the a love bazaar. That was a good part of the show too, because again, Sheila E was that. That's a Sheila E song, but they sort of duetted on that. Um, and the, I remember the stuff from the Black album, um, the Bob George. I remember. I think they did that one, and some. I think they did. There was another song called "Super Funky Califragisexy," which I believe they also did. Um, I don't remember if they did Cindy C. I think I'm, my mind is conflating listening to the album for the first time that week and also seeing the show. I think it was the same day even. Um, so it was very some of that those lines blur in, in the passage of time. But I, I, I remember at least those two songs from, from the Black Album. And it was just sort of this frenetic mix. Like you said, it was a medley of everything you would do to – maybe even one minute of a song and then just sort of segue right into the other because they were in the same key, same tempo sort of thing and would do it effortlessly. Uh, Prince was almost being like what we would later see DJs doing, you know, just live remixing basically. Um, but the first half was was incredible. And then he came out to the second half and that's where the real – the re- where he waited, he saved the crowd-pleasing stuff for the very end, the real – what you know what the the casual fans came to see it would be like uh you know when they revived star wars a couple years ago and they dropped the chewy we're home trailer that's that's what hooked the casual fans like oh i remember him you know like i got that reference um he did the he had a i think it was about a three or four song um closing part of it where it just seemed like he did encore after encore after encore and it was all the big ones he saved the big stuff till the end he saved uh 1999 um but the big one purple rain my god i'll never forget him doing the the guitar solo at the end he just did this insane uh you know improvisational jam of extending that song out into a way that 
I've, he got the whole entire crowd doing the, you know, the, the sing-along part at the end. And it just went on, it seemed like, for like three or four minutes. And it was just insane. He, he, would, he would hold notes and he literally, I think it was Let's Go Crazy when he did the, the final thing. And he, he like hit a note on his guitar and balanced his guitar on the end of his hand and just held it up in the air as the note sustained. And people were watching. It's just the cockiest shit you've ever seen in your life. And him holding this guitar up with one hand, like, this shit is still playing, people. I'm not even touching it. And people were losing their minds, uh, just building up to the point where he just, you know, everything stopped. And then he came out in the car for Alphabet Street at the end. But that version of Purple Rain is probably the most emotional I've ever been outside of, you know, uh, uh, any any think of the most emotional moments of your life that was right up there for me outside of uh, you know deaths of a loved one or anything or maybe seeing a movie that just really caught you and it's just one of those moments where you look around and you see 12 13,000 people just all eyes on this guy and he had everybody just as one um it was, it was it was beautiful. It was, yeah. That's incredible. That's what live music is really all about. Yeah, and it, it I mean, I'm always amazed um, just at live performers, and you know, just to to get up to the task, you know, night after night, you know, and you know, I've seen shows, and and let's give Prince some credit. He's always surrounded himself with good musicians. So his live shows are always just so tight, you know, just from a musical standpoint. But then you throw in the theatrics and you alluded to it before, you know, he knew how to play to a crowd, you know, and that, I mean, I think let's just take all of his albums out of the picture. You know, if you listen to an album, the music itself can take you to a number of different places, but to see him live in concert and just, to allow him to take you <laughs> to places you've never been before. I think that's pretty special. I, I, I was looking at, I don't know, it was some type of, I don't know, a Zion or whatever. It was like, it was a, what do you call those things? Um, a message board about Prince. And mm-hmm. this one guy had said, you know, he basically said that this was his best tour ever. He's like, I actually feel bad for people who (laughs) miss this tour. He said, you know, if you weren't born at the time, I feel bad for you. If you were alive and you didn't go, I don't feel as bad for you because you're stupid. (laughs) You know, (laughs) and then he said something to the fact that it it should be, you know, a, a, a video of that concert should be issued at birth to every person who wasn't around at that time. Yeah, it should definitely be in the Smithsonian. They should find the best copy they have of one of those shows and put that up as a reference. This is what this guy was like. You know, you have uh, Nirvana's Live and Loud MTV performance should go in there. Uh, You know, Rolling Stones at Altamont, something like that. I don't know, like just seminal moments in in music history. It's unbelievable. A good idea to like... If you want to get a sense of what his band was like, I think if you can still find the Sign of the Times concert movie. I don't know. Did you you and I see that in the theater together? I think we did. We did. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, that's and then, that's the same, essentially the same band that he had for that Love Sexy tour. And so that wasn't New Power Generation, and it wasn't um, what was his other big backup band? Um, it was New Power Generation and Revolution was the, the original. Revolution, the Revolution, that's right. And I think there was yeah, even w- one more, wasn't there? Uh, I don't remember. I mean, I I. I stopped following all the iterations of his band after around the late nineties. Cause I wasn't all that, I wasn't feeling most of his music. He was kind of seemed like he was getting a little too, I don't know, bland. That's the <laughs> word for it. But it just started to sound a little bit, not as adventurous as it used to sound to me. Yeah. Uh, but I was into more uh, in the nineties. I was, music was going a lot of different directions and I got into a bunch of different things at that point. So Prince was a foundational thing for me, which, you know, was a nice springboard to a lot of other things, but, uh, I wasn't really hearing a lot from him in the nineties that was inspiring me. But this, the stuff from, from 1980 to probably 1994 was just solid. Yeah. Everything did. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because you mentioned that, um, you know, your first experience with Prince was you know, listening to your sister's uh, 1999 album. And my my experience is similar. I, I didn't know this, but he actually came to Gary, Indiana. He played at the Genesis Center. It was in, I think it was in 82 or 83. And it was the 1999 tour. And my sister went. And And I, you know, I was probably 12 at the time. And she, you know, bought an LP and brought it home. And I mean, it was pretty much pretty much over from there. But um, but yeah, I mean, I get it. I mean, the thing and you alluded to this earlier, too, which is, you know, I think we all know that Prince would do a show every day in his living room if he could. Right. He just loved to play and he loved to create. And for the most part, he really liked creating and performing and releasing his music. And you know, a lot of his music wasn't really, you know, commercial, let's put it that way. But, you know, he did write a lot of music for a lot of other people. You know, we can go on. We, I think you and I, as well as a lot of other people, we can talk for hours about Prince. But, yeah. but it's interesting. I do have a quick list here of his tours. So give me two minutes here because, I mean, and just try to pinpoint the years. So, I mean, I don't, did this guy tour every year? So, Prince Dirty Mind Tour was his first tour from 1980, 81. The 19, mm-hmm. 1999 tour, uh, 82, 83. Uh, Prince and the Revolution Purple Rain Tour was in 84, 85. Uh, Prince of the Revolution Parade Tour, 1986. Uh, Prince Sign of the Times Tour was in 87. Uh, both the Parade and Sign of the Times, both of those tours didn't even play in the U.S., um, Prince Love Sexy Tour was in 88, 89. Uh, Prince The Nude Tour was in 1990. Uh, Prince and the New Power Generation Diamonds and Pearl Tour featuring Carmen Electra was in 92. Um, <laughs> that's hard to imagine. Uh, I forgot yeah. all about her. Uh, Act One, uh, Prince and the New Power Generation uh, was the tour in 1993. Act Two, Prince and the Power Generation was in 94. Uh, the Ultimate Live Experience was his 1995 tour. Um, and then in 96, 
that's when he changed his name to the artist formerly known as Prince. He did a tour, tour in Japan. It was just seven, seven shows. Um, so he wasn't that busy in 96. Uh, Emancipation Celebration, Love for One Another Charities Tour, was a charities tour he did in 97. Then he did the Jam of the Year World Tour um, at the latter half of 97. He did the New Power Soul Tour in 88, New Power Festival Soul Tour in 98. And this is kind of where it starts to get to your point, you know, we were on to other <laughs> types of music, right? Uh, yeah. Prince Hit and Run Tour 2000, Prince A Celebration 2001. He only did six shows at that tour. Uh, the One Night Alone Tour 2002. That was a tour that I kind of in retrospect wish I would have checked out. Um, uh, Prince of the New Power Generation World Tour uh, was in 2003. And he only did nine shows there. Musicology Live uh, 2004 ever was that tour. Um, and then this tour that I went to was the uh, Prince Performing Live 3121 tour, which was all all the shows. That was that was basically his res residency um, at, the Rio, mm -hmm. at the Rio in Vegas. Uh, then okay. he did the Prince 21 Nights in London Earth Tour in 2007. Um, and again, all those took place at the O2 Arena in London. Um, and then Prince 20 tour in 2010. And then I stopped. I was like, I can't. <laughs> I can't keep going. I keep... But yeah. there, out of all the tours, I think there was probably four tours where he did maybe seven shows or six shows or nine shows. Shows. All of the other tours, minimum of 40, 40 shows. Yeah, it's not surprising he ended up with hip injuries. Oh, my gosh, dude. That is insane. That's a lot of shows. Because... This isn't a guy, it's not like Bob Dylan doing this where he's like standing there with a guitar and mumbling. Prince was all over the stage. Prince was, I mean, even like the 2012 show, he was, that was close to the end for him. And he was still moving around like crazy. He looked like the guy was 50 years old. He looked like he was 20. Yeah. Seriously, from a distance, you couldn't tell. Looked just like he always did. He was, uh, you know, I mean, that, remember the old, uh, the old comparison, you know, who's better, Michael Jackson or Prince, and that it always went back and forth. I mean, in my mind, there's really no comparison. Yeah, yeah Prince, Prince was the man. So, rest in peace, Prince. So, Mike, I appreciate you, man. I appreciate you uh, just sharing your story with us and, and sharing that that concert experience. Um, <laughs> it's it's weird man just to kind of hear you go through some of that stuff it kind of takes me back and, and you know and that's really one reason why i really wanted to kind of do this podcast is you know not not only to be taken back to a special place in time um but just to kind of get a piece of what other people uh, experienced and, and what they remember um and and actually it's been kind of cool too because i've learned a lot um believe it or not there's some artists and some shows on this podcast that um, I'm not even familiar with. Uh, so <laughs> it's, it's interesting to me. Um, so one other segment um, that I like to do is the, uh, your, your dinner party kind of download playlist. Um, so I'm going to ask every one of my guests to kind of give me what their dinner party download is. So if you're having a dinner party, what's playing in the background. So give me your list and give it to me. Uh, so the interesting thing about this that I'm learning is that 
and I mean, and I think both you and I kind of already know this just in the general sense, which is um, the, the, the track list, like even when we used to DJ, you played certain songs at certain times to create a certain environment and to get a certain reaction. And so for me, I think it's important to be able to, well, obviously when you're, when you're DJing in front of a crowd, you know, it's important to control the crowd and to dictate to the crowd, you know, how they're feeling because we don't always know how we want to feel, right? So when it comes to a dinner party, I think it's important to to do that as well. Um, I think that's part of having a successful dinner party and, and keeping it moving. So give me your list of songs and just give me just a, a quick idea of why this particular song is at the beginning. Why would you throw this song as number four? Uh, what's happening at your dinner party now where you this song needs to be number four? And what is this song going to do to your guests at this particular point within your dinner party? So give it to cool. me. All right. <clears throat> okay, so the first song that I had that sprung to mind, and these are all kind of, I guess they're kind of in this order because I was thinking as I was going through the list, what would I drop next? What would I drop next? Uh, I don't think I would change this order too much. Uh, it seems to flow kind of well one to the other, whether it's stylistically or the key or maybe something about the the sound, the melody, just vocals. I don't know. It just seems to flow. And some of them aren't vocals, so it's it, that's how, that doesn't really apply. But the first track that I had is uh, a classic, Take 5 by Dave Brubeck. Um, this is... You know, you've heard it in a million things. It's been in commercials, it's been in movies, it's been in TV shows, but it just, it's a perfect mood setter. Uh, gets you right where you want to be for that party. Everybody kind of knows the song. Everybody kind of can appreciate this. This it, It's got the the sort of the, the play of the saxophone where it almost like three melody lines, three separate motifs that he plays with, that Dave plays with as he goes there's the the sort of the muted sort of intro and then there's the playful later and then it goes into the there's almost a bridge piece but the, just the three kind of motifs I, I i love all of them it's it's one of my favorite jazz tunes uh of, uh, of all time um sort of the segue from there is into my favorite ray la montaigne song of all time this album, uh, the song is called Hold You In My Arms. This album, I will always remember, I walked from Union Square in San Francisco all the way to the pier, which is a good mile and a half maybe walk up and down a hill. And I, when I got to the, there's sort of a steps behind the nautical museum that looked, overlooks the bay. And I sat there on those steps and watched the boats go in and out of San Francisco Bay listening to this album. And when this song came on, it was just an amazing moment. Uh, it's This album, to me, sounds exactly like San Francisco Bay on a sunny day. Uh, this song is the best song on that album. It's probably the best Ray LaMontagne song, and I'll fight anybody who disagrees with me. It's also um, just kind of a nice, pleasant dinner party song if you want to listen to it it's great if you just want in the background it's got a catchy melody it just sort of washes over you and calms you and reassures you um he's got one of the great voices in music and i love this song 
the third one on there is coincidentally by the guy we were just talking about, and that is uh, Prince with Starfish and Coffee. This is one of the songs from Sign of the Times that I believe is overlooked. It's very quirky and kind of whimsical, I guess I would call it. Um, very innocent, bouncy, optimistic. Um, it's it's just kind of a unique thing for Prince to do a song like this because it doesn't sound like the typical kind of thing that he was involved in. Uh, he was always, it's not preachy. It's not, uh, you know, sort of this weird sexual kind of thing. It's just kind of a fun, lighthearted, uh, catchy tune. And I think it would work well at a dinner party and it kind of has uh, starfish and coffee. Sounds a little bit like something you'd serve at a dinner party, I guess. Um, I don't know. I've never had starfish, but Prince probably has, and they must be good. Uh, let's see. What else do I have here? Okay, the next one. Uh, that kind of segues nicely into my next one, which is uh, A Case of You by Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell was very instrumental uh, and big influence on Prince when he was writing sign of the times and a lot of the stuff that he wrote in the late 80s i think reflects kind of the Joni mitchell vibe i didn't want to pick something you know obvious uh you know big yellow taxi or anything like that because i feel like that kind of stuff is played out i thought what's a good Joni mitchell song I, I feel like this song a case of you just has the right vibe it sounds a little bit like a nice segue from uh from the prince song it's one of my favorite Joni mitchell songs um and it just felt like, again, like I'm thinking like a DJ, what would I drop next? I would drop this song next. It just fits. It flows. Um, going from there, let's kind of stay with that same vibe. A little bit of the classic music, but uh, a softer sound of somebody who is famous for doing something much harder, which is Led Zeppelin with Going to California. Uh, this song, I think a lot of people might remember from the finale of Entourage. If you watched that show, if you didn't, you remember it from the original version, which is hearing it from the Led Zeppelin album. But um, this is one of those songs that's just got, it sounds very pleasant and happy. And then there's this melancholy twist where there's where Robert Plant just sort of takes that repetitious uh, melody line that leads into the into the the chorus and it just kind of uh it takes it to a different direction and then it comes back into that sort of positive that sort of positive feeling vibe to it and it just feels a little bit melancholy a little bit hopeful kind of kind of sad maybe but i think it's a nice piece for a for a dinner party the way the, the way the vibe of this party is going so far uh following that up i'm gonna go real real different and that's dropping claude debussy's claire de lune uh this is pretty much well-known like take five by dave rubeck um probably one of the more famous interpretations of this was i'm not even sure where you can find it except on the soundtrack uh would be oceans 11 when they're all at the fountain by the casino in vegas um that version i don't recall i think it might just be specifically recorded for that soundtrack but this is the actual original version of claire de lune um any any number of recordings I, I wouldn't say there's a definitive one for me. Uh, it's just the piano piece. Um, it's sort of a kind of a nice finisher right after that the song before from the Led Zeppelin. But uh, I just it's one of my favorite classical pieces of all time, and I think it speaks for itself. 
And then we'll lead out of that into a little Duke Ellington, a little Harlem Nocturne, which, again, where we're going to pick it up a little bit. We're going to get a little more contemporary following off WC, but I don't want to go too jarring, so I wanted to kind of keep it in that vein of something a little bit vintage, but a little kind of updated. This is a fantastic uh, Ellington piece. Uh, it's got a nice nice swing to it, but it's still kind of moody, and it, and it keeps it keeps it in the same vibe of this party um there's a lot of ones i could have picked from ellington but this is one of my favorites again and then we're going to finish it off with disclosure featuring sam smith the song is latch and this song is an earworm to end all earworms uh from a few years ago probably i want to say probably 2013 i'm not sure exactly the date but uh, this was the song that ruled the summer a few years ago, and it's just a very nice, probably my favorite Sam Smith song, to be honest, which is, uh, it's, it's, it's got a great instrumentation. It's very, very low key and subtle, and the bass line is kind of muted and, and just kind of insistent at the same time. But the hook, the chorus hook is fantastic, and it's a nice way to sort of put a button on the little, on a nice classy casual party where we're all just sort of drinking wine and maybe smoking a few things and uh reliving some of our favorite memories from the past as we've done here tonight well i tell you what man i am going to steal this this list for my next uh dinner party because this is you know what this reminds me of it reminds me of like well definitely it reminds me of being outdoors it, it, it's it's a it's a summer dinner party playlist because every yeah. song that's on here is, it could be the perfect kind of summer dinner party. Um, so I'm gonna steal this from you. I appreciate it. Um, the other thing too is, is I need to be drinking champagne while this, uh, while this track, while this list is is going. It seems <laughs> like this list would go good with champagne. Yeah. Well, well there's a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> This episode of Life in Concert Podcast is brought to you by Phantom Sweat. Phantom Sway. We make stuff you'll love. Seriously, check us out. PhantomSway.com <laughs>